Our scripture passage, our scripture reading is in the Gospel of Luke. We're moving towards the Gospel of Luke, uh, really the Christmas story beginning with uh, Gabriel's announcement to, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, we're going to talk about another announcement and uh, event that happened in the context of all of that. Luke chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 57. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. And this takes place uh, after Mary, the mother of Jesus, has gone to, to visit Elizabeth in a rural town in the hills of Judea. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. <clears throat> now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But the mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives that is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and began to speak in praise to God. Fear came upon those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, to the understanding and the application of our minds, hearts, and lives. Amen. One of the great things about Christmas is the excitement, the anticipation. It seems like every year around our house, we start playing Christmas music earlier and earlier. I know that bothers a lot of people. We try to wait until Thanksgiving, but we seldom can wait. We went to Coeur d'Alene a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving this last November, and of course we took the CDs and played the Christmas music on the way up and on the way back in the van. When we got to Coeur d'Alene, we stayed at uh, the Roosevelt Inn, which is a bed and breakfast in Coeur d'Alene, stayed there a couple of nights. Uh, it was a, used to be a three-and-a-half-story schoolhouse, the original schoolhouse in downtown Coeur d'Alene. They made it into a beautiful bed and breakfast. And as we came in, it was already dark and kind of late, and we came in, the entryway, they already had the Christmas tree, and the entryway is all decorated, and they were already decorating for Christmas. They put up 23 trees in their bed and breakfast every year, and uh, so we just, we just loved it. We, we might very well be Christmas junkies. And uh, one of our holiday traditions is to watch the popular movie A Christmas Story on Thanksgiving night. And uh, this year, we kind of jumped the gun. We, we did it Thanksgiving night, but Elizabeth stayed in Napa because she had to be to work early Saturday or Friday morning for, for Black Friday. And so we watched A Christmas Story without her. And uh, if she was here today, I would ask her if she's still forgiven us or, <laughs> or because we jumped the gun on that. But the movie A Christmas Story brings one nostalgic feeling after another as you watch it. The school even looks like... Wardwell Elementary School that I went to here, here in Emmett. And there's the scene where the, the kid has dared to put his tongue on the frozen flagpole. And it's just a classic. And we all remember those times. And the little boy in the movie is named Ralphie. 
And the movie is about he wants a BB gun for Christmas. Not just any BB gun, but as he says it, I want an official Red Ryder Carbon Action 100 shot range model air rifle. And uh, the problem for Ralphie is every time he tells somebody that's what he wants for Christmas, they say, you'll shoot your eye out. Oh, those things are dangerous. You'll shoot your eye out. Even the department store Santa says to him, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. And so he just can't get anybody to listen to him. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to give away the ending, except to say when we drove up to North Idaho a few weeks ago and we pulled into the Walmart uh, on, in Hayden, Idaho, and went into Walmart, and I was looking around, and there was a big display covered with boxes about this long. There were dozens of official Red Ryder Carbon Action 200-shot range model air rifles for sale. So if anything out, he, he's brought back the old Daisy air rifle. I had one of those. We all had one of those. All of us have childhood memories related to what we wanted for Christmas, that anticipation, that excitement. And it, it just built as Christmas got closer and closer. And it wasn't just about the gifts. It was about the whole experience of, of Christmas, the excitement, the anticipation. On the TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? They took a poll of 8 to 12-year-olds and asked them, what do you enjoy most about the holidays? A, decorating the house. B, spending time with family and relatives. C, receiving presents. What do you think most of the children said? Most of the children said, B, spending time with family and relatives. Because it's all part of that. In the Gospel of Luke, tucked in between when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said that she would conceive and bear a child and he would be the Savior, the Son of God, between that time and the time when Mary gives birth to that child, in between those times, we find a gathering of family and relatives. They gathered for an important, joyful event in the life of family, when on the eighth day, with the birth of the son, family and friends gathered at the synagogue for the circumcision and the naming of the baby. It was a joyous, exciting event in the life of the family and the friends. This was one of the highlights of, of their life together as family. But before we get to that gathering of family and friends, we need to back up a bit in the Gospel of Luke, and we need to fill in the story. We need to see the anticipation build. We need to see the expectancy. We need to see the excitement. So please turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, the first chapter, at verse 5. First chapter of Luke at, at verse 5. This is six months before the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would conceive and bear a son. Gabriel also appeared six months before in the temple to a priest by the name of Zacharias. And we pick up the story at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of the Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, 
According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Verse 11, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. We need to stop there for a moment. This is much more than a heavenly vision as, as tremendous as that was and even as traumatic as that's going to be for Zacharias because at this point in history, when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple, God broke his silence. God had not spoken through a prophet. He had not sent an angelic messenger to bring his word. He had not spoken for over 400 years. Verse 11 breaks four centuries of God's silence. The last word of the Lord would have been the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, 400 years before. And that last word had promised basically two things. That God would send both the Lord whom you seek, the Lord they were anticipating, the Lord they were waiting for, and also he would send a messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple to announce the birth of the messenger who would go before the Lord. When Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and stood at the right of the altar of incense, it initiated the time of fulfillment. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about in the fullness of time, at God's perfect time, God brought forth his son born of a woman. This sparks that beginning of the time is here because this is the Announcement of the birth of the messenger, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. The waiting was about to be over for God's promises to be fulfilled. This would have been the last thing that Zacharias expected. I mean, he wouldn't even have come close to thinking that he would go into the temple and perform his regular priestly duties, done it probably hundreds of times, said the right prayers, burned the right incense, and then all of a sudden... There's an angel standing there to the right of the table of incense. So in verse 12, we find Zacharias' response to the angel and then the angel's message. Zacharias was troubled, verse 12, when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Evidently, he had been praying about his wife bearing a child. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back <clears throat> excuse me, to the Lord their God. For it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper 
time. So now in the text, we jump ahead to that nine months, that nine months when the prophecy is going to be fulfilled, when this comes to place, comes to pass, to the birth of a son which had been promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth, to verse 57 again. 400 years earlier, God had spoken through the prophet Malachi. A messenger would come who would prepare the way for the Lord. Nine months earlier, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and announced that Elizabeth, his wife, would bear this son, this messenger, who will be the forerunner before the Lord. God had already proved himself faithful to Zacharias. Elizabeth had become pregnant. One day, Mary shows up at their home. She is newly pregnant, as promised by Gabriel. Then there's that confirmation of the Holy Spirit when Mary and Elizabeth greet one another and, and the child, John, jumps in, in Elizabeth's womb. Zacharias would have heard Mary's song of praise at that as she magnified the Lord. Then over the weeks and months, there had been the conversations between Mary and Elizabeth as they talked about babies and births and told their birth stories, you know how all women do. They would also talk about what God is doing. Because here's two miraculous announcements and miraculous births and pregnancies. And this whole time, women will appreciate this, Zacharias had been struck mute. <laughs> Couldn't say a word. Maybe we still are. <laughs> you know, men, we just want to jump into those birthing stories, don't we? We just want to take part of that. <laughs> But you can imagine the anticipation day after day, Zacharias' excitement, his anticipation builds. He sees that God is keeping his promises. And poor Zacharias has to keep it to himself. Literally as part of the judgment of God because he did not believe at first. It had to be as if 400 years of the combined anticipation of Israel and their Messiah had built up within him. As well as the nine months of expectation since Gabriel's announcement. It was all boiling inside of him. If you've ever been waiting for hundreds of years for something, as it were, seems like hundreds of years, have you been waiting for nine months? And then what God has promised comes true. Now we come to that gathering of family and friends that's so important. Verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Nine months after Gabriel's announcements with verse 57, it starts coming true. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. This was a family and friends gathering where everyone was rejoicing with Elizabeth. And in verse 58, we find one of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke, of Luke's entire Gospel. And this main theme is the cause of the family and friends rejoicing with Elizabeth. It's combined in two words. In verse 58, the two words are great mercy. Great mercy. The Lord has displayed his great mercy toward Elizabeth. When the Old Testament speaks of the great mercy of God, it uses a particular Hebrew word that's very common to talk about God and his great mercy. It's almost unpronounceable and it's almost undefinable. 
to us American English people who don't speak so goodly. But uh, the Hebrew word is chesed. In fact, we don't even have, you know, it's like the German bach. You know, it begins with that, you know. We'd have a hard time even pronouncing chesed, chesed. It's hard to pronounce and it's hard to define, but chesed is the word God uses to define himself again and again in the Old Testament. When God wanted to explain who he is and what he has done for us and how he deals with us with his grace and with his mercy, he uses the word chesed. He says that he shows his chesed. His faithfulness to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. It's, it's one of those untranslatable words where there's no English equivalent. It's often translated loving kindness. God shows his loving kindness to us. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The hesed of the Lord endures forever. Michael Card, who's written a lot of great Christian songs, but it's also written some, some good books on, on, uh, on the books of the Bible, he, he talks about it this way. The best translation I have found for this untranslatable word takes an entire sentence. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. He continues, without requiring an entire book, that phrase pretty well captures the meaning of chesed in the Old Testament. When the concept of chesed appears in the New Testament, it's usually translated grace or mercy, unquote. In fact, we could take the word grace, which means what? God's undeserved, his unmerited favor. And we could take the word mercy, not getting what we do deserve because of what we've done. We combine those together, we've got chesed. In the Gospel of Luke, Mary's Magnificent, her song of praise that we saw last week is full of hesed. She said in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, God's mercy is from generation to generation. In verse 54, we are told again that God is mindful of his mercy. And then in four verses later in Luke chapter 1, verse 58, where we read here that the mercy had been shown to Elizabeth, the mother of John. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And uh, Luke gives us a really good example through the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. You know the story because we have the story of what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Though the wounded man who had been beaten up by robbers lay on the ground, he had no right to expect anything from a no good Samaritan as he saw it. Behold, he receives over the top mercy. First aid, a donkey ride to the inn, room and board, and the promise that the Samaritan will be back to check on him. And when Jesus forces the legal expert who called for the story in the first place to decide who his neighbor is, the man is forced to mumble, well, the man who showed mercy is my neighbor. Hesed, hesed. Ultimately, the cross of Jesus Christ will define hesed. He died on the cross to show us mercy, to save us, to take the penalty for our sins. God's hesed was on display on the cross of Jesus Christ for all of us to see. When the friends and relatives of Elizabeth came to rejoice of her, it all started to become true. There had been promises, there had been prophecies. Now we have an actual, 
living baby. We'll talk more about an actual living baby next week and the, the baby Jesus. But, uh, you know, don't, don't you love babies? Their fingernails. You ever looked at their fingernails? All these little tiny fingernails and these jerky little motions, the soft skin. And, and all the women in the room go, ooh, I want to see the baby. And, you know, <laughs> a living baby that God had promised. Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Luke is careful here to tell us this is a sign of God's chesed, of his great mercy. And therefore, it's a cause for great rejoicing. Verse 59 of Luke's gospel continues with Zacharias' obedience to the Lord. We, we already read before that both he and Elizabeth were righteous. They were blameless in the, the ways of God. According to God's word, all male babies were to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And circumcision was the sign of, of the people of God being in covenantal relationship with, with God. So on the eighth day, Zacharias and Elizabeth, all their relatives, come together for the happy occasion. Verse 59. And it happened on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they are going to call him Zacharias after his father. This sparked a family feud. Have you ever been to a Thanksgiving or Christmas celebration with your family where, wow, things just didn't go right? I wish we had never gone there. If it hasn't happened to you, it does, it does happen. You know, sadly. The structure of the sentence seems to indicate that the relatives were already calling the baby Zacharias after his father. Oh, we're going to go see Zacharias circumcised today. This is great. God's great mercy in Zacharias. You know, there's a reason that uh, mom and dad don't tell anybody what the baby's name is until after it's born. You know, don't spark any family, family arguments. They kept referring to him as Zacharias, little Zach and big Zach. That was the traditional way to give the baby a name already common in the family. That's a nice thought, but it was wrong. The angel said his name shall be John. Verse 60. But his mother Elizabeth answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, and you can read the relative stuff in this. There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. <laughs> That's the way it reads. You know, they were really upset. What's the matter with you? That's really stupid. And verse 62 shows us that the argument probably got quite vocal. People arguing back and forth and the noise level was rising and what was supposed to be a joyous celebration of God's mercy had turned into a family fright because, fight because it appears here that it somehow was hard to get Zachariah's attention or to get him to say what his wishes were. You know, it, the, the noise level is rising. Zacharias was mute, not deaf. And I think there's a little bit of humor in verse 62. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. I find that kind of humorous. Making signs to a mute man. <laughs> <You know. laughs> is it just me or is that kind of weird? <laughs> Trying to get him to voice his instructions. Well, I think what was going on here, they probably knew that Zacharias had been communicating by writing things down. So maybe they're going to Zacharias. Write it down, Zacharias. Tell us his name is Zacharias. Verse 63, and Zacharias asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows. His name is John. 
and they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak and praised of God. In a minute, we're going to look at, at that in verse, beginning at verse 67. Zacharias' original disbelief of Gabriel's promise of a son had been replaced by faith when in fulfillment of Gabriel's judgment, Zacharias became mute. His faith was further strengthened when Elizabeth conceived. Now Zacharias' faith insisted and produced obedience as he doggedly insisted that his son be named John. The name John means the Lord has given grace. The Lord has given grace. Guess it again. Grace and mercy. The most fitting of names for one who is called to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And having written down the name on the tablet, the Lord loosened Zechariah's tongue, and there was an outflow of praise to God. You know, just think of the spiritual voltage that's taking place here. Zacharias had endured nine months of speechless frustration. And with all the questions that both Mary and Elizabeth probably kept asking for the, the past three months, what was the angel's name? How did you know it was an angel? Those kind of things. All he could do was just scribble. What did he promise? Just scribble down a few things on a clay tablet. You know, it was, it was a tablet with a wood frame around it, and it was clay in the middle, and you just scribble in that and kind of make the letters, and then you smooth it out again to, to write something else. All he could do was respond by scribbling on a tablet, and now the pent-up frustration, the anticipation, poured out in loud emotional praise. And in this way, he foreshadowed the ministry that his son, John, is going to have. The future God-glorifying ministry of John. And, it, and even at this point, it brought a fresh, straight of a fresh state of spiritual health within the whole area. Verse 65, fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And then beginning in verse 67 and 68, we find this glorious psalm of praise. Zechariah stood as the mouthpiece of God. He prophesied. The first prophecy in over 400 years. Here he's a divine soloist. And like Mary's song of praise that we looked at last week, we find that Zacharias' song of praise is filled with scripture. Zacharias' entire priestly life had been drawn and nourished from his knowledge of the holy scriptures. And now he's saying an almost entirely Old Testament phraseology. Someone has pointed out here that there are as many as 33 possible illusions and quotations from the Old Testament. You know, that, that's like three per verse. You know, don't you just love it when somebody prays and you just hear God's word all the way through that prayer? Here we have it in Zechariah's song, God's word. Zacharias knew how to praise God because he had been steeped in the scriptures. He loved God's word. Now the song of praise, we can only kind of hit some high points, but I think we'll hit some good points in it. The song of praise basically has three verses. And each one of the verses has to do with God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. 
what we call his covenant, his, his agreement. Covenant is how we're in relationship with God. So Zacharias first gives God praise for fulfilling his covenant with David. And then he gives God praise for fulfilling his covenant with Abraham. Do those names sound familiar? David and Abraham. And lastly, Zacharias gives God's praise for the fulfillment of the, the new covenant. The new relationship that God is going to have with us through Jesus Christ. So first of all, Zacharias gives praise for fulfilling the covenant with David. Reminding us that all of these things are coming true. Coming true through the baby who has been born and come to Elizabeth and Zacharias. Verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The Davidic covenant, the covenant with David, was basically this. God had promised King David that he would be succeeded to the throne by his son Solomon. And that Solomon would build the temple, the house of God. And that an even greater successor sometime after Solomon, would establish the throne forever. The Davidic covenant is, has to do with the house of God and the forever throne of a descendant of David. The covenant was delivered initially by the prophet Nathan to David. When David was at the height of his power as king of Israel, and he expressed his desire to, to build a temple for God, the covenant reads in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon will be raised up to build a house for the name of God and that his throne his line would reign forever. This great promise of this enduring kingdom spurred the hopes and the dreams of the faithful in Israel. They were under Roman occupation. Before Roman occupation, they'd been under Greek occupation. We had all that horrible stuff with Antiochus Epiphanes that we talked about in our study in the book of Daniel. This had been hundreds of years of of being trampled down, trampled over, not being able to worship the way they wanted to worship at times, and at other times, taxed to death by the Romans and by Herod and everybody else, and there was no king over Israel. They looked longingly for the great coming ruler of the house of David. You know, one of the things when I went to Israel a few years ago, that, you know, people when I got back said, well, what did you find out that maybe was surprising to you? You know, I knew about what we call the messianic expectation at this point in the Old Testament and the New Testament, expecting their Redeemer, their Savior. But I always assumed that since Israel rejected Jesus for the most part, you know, I don't know what I thought, but when I got to Israel, the messianic expectation was, you know, at a level that you just can't even hardly imagine. Didn't matter who you talked to. 
Even if they didn't really have a religious view about the Messiah, they were still waiting for that king that was promised who will come and get rid of all these people that keep attacking Israel. They were looking for a political Messiah. Then you talk to the, the Orthodox Jews and, and the Jews who are still expecting their religious Messiah. And so that messianic expectation, that's the thing that surprised me the most. The level of that that's still in Israel today. God promised King David that there would be one who would come and establish the forever throne. You know, and we read in the prophet Isaiah the same, the same prophecy, and we read this a lot at Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. <coughs> and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zacharias prophesied in his psalm of praise that in keeping the covenant with David, God has raised up a horn of salvation. God has raised up a redeemer. He's accomplished redemption. One who will have no end to his government. So Zacharias praises God for fulfilling the Davidic covenant, and then he gives God praise for fulfilling the covenant with Abraham. Verse 72. To show mercy. There's Hesed again. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Might serve him without fear. Nine months before, how did Zacharias feel about that? He was deathly afraid. He was, now he understands that he can serve God without fear. The covenant expressed with Abraham, or given to Abraham, was that God would make a great nation out of Abraham. Even though Abraham was without children, God said, I will make a great nation of you. And that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. But Zacharias reminds us something else in this covenant with Abraham, how it reflects or affects our relationship to God. That we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That is what God does in the believing heart. He liberates it so it can serve without fear. Mary became the first servant in this age of grace, this Hesed of the New Testament, when she said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Joyous Christian service is a hallmark of the lives where the Son of God has risen in our hearts. Joyous Christian service, serving God without fear, is because the Son of God has risen in our hearts. Christianity not only delivers us from our sin, but it infuses our lives with purpose, with joyous service. Then lastly, Zacharias gives God praise for the fulfillment of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Zacharias here was experiencing a once-in-a-lifetime elevation of his soul. 
And I think that his eyes had to have fallen on his newborn son. And so he turns in his psalm and prays to the, the part that his son will play when God keeps his promises. Verse 76 of John chapter 1, speaking of John, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. I don't think we can overstate Zacharias' emotion here. There had been no prophet among the Jews for over four centuries. Zacharias had just recovered his voice. He's using it as given by the Holy Spirit to praise and prophesy. And he looks at this baby boy and says, And to you, child. This baby was the focus of divine revelation. I don't think these were calm utterances. They came in a halting, tremulous voice. I believe Zacharias probably struggled to gain composure. His son, born of his old age and the old age of his wife Elizabeth, would be the prophet who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, for Jesus Christ. As Isaiah put it, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Every time I hear that, I think of Handel's Messiah, prepare ye the... <laughs> yeah, that, that's from Isaiah. I like the Hallelujah Chorus, but boy, the, the part from Isaiah where these prophecies are coming true. It's going to be a message of the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Why? How? All because of the tender mercy of God. Chesed. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing, Gives me everything. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now because of time restraints, uh, we could take a month on each portion of this psalm and, and really dig into it. We just hit the high points. But I want to, to close and finish up with that phrase, the sunrise from on high who will visit us. On account of his chesed, God visited a peasant girl in Nazareth. On account of his chesed, God visited an elderly couple, First in the temple and then in a rural community outside of Jerusalem in the hills of Judea. And on account of his chesed, God will visit us with the sunrise from on high. The sunrise from on high refers to a person. In many of your Bibles, the word sunrise is correctly, as I say it, capitalized. Capital S, sunrise referring to somebody, a name of somebody. The King James Version translates it day spring, which is a good translation, but it's little d, so the New King James Version has translated it capital D, day spring. Some of the modern translations just simply translate it with no capital letters, the rising sun. So I want to take you back four centuries before Zacharias to the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament, to Malachi. To Malachi, right before Matthew, unless you have a lot of study notes in between. <laughs> but anyway, you know, to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. God's last word to his people before Gabriel, and then his word to Zacharias. 
Because what Zacharias is saying alludes to what's going on in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. The fourth chapter, verse 2. Part of God's final word in the Old Testament before the silent centuries. This was the hope of the people of Israel. Verse 2 of Malachi chapter 4. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Malachi and Zacharias are painting the same picture here. And the picture that they're painting for us, as Zacharias alludes to what's going on in Malachi, is that we've all lost our way. We're lost in the darkness. We're, we're totally in trouble. And, and the picture here is like a caravan out in the wilderness that's lost its way. It's gotten lost. I don't know if you've ever actually been lost hunting, you know, and, and the fear that grips you. I have. In fact, I knew where I was. Everybody else was lost. I didn't know where they were. But that fear still grips you and it starts to get darker and darker. You start really worrying about that. This is the picture of a caravan, a whole group of people who have not only gotten lost, but darkness overtakes them. The caravan is stranded in utter darkness. It's in a lonely place. It's in a howling place, an expanse in the wilderness. We know this is the wilderness of, of sin. The sky is lowering. There's no starlight. There's no moonlight. The caravan, as the Greek literally says, is sitting in darkness. It's a moving picture of lethargy, of the oppression of the darkness, the entropy, the despair, the, the hopelessness. They are helpless. This is the way Isaiah described it. People walking in darkness, living in the shadow of death. If they make a move, they probably die. If they just sit there, they die. But this is how Kent Hughes then describes it. But then a faint change is seen in the east. The sky no longer black, but blue. Their eyes move to the west, and in the darkness, forms begin to take shape. At first, the forms are metallic and dull. Then comes a wisp of color as their eyes switch back to the east. The cobalt blue turns to royal blue, and a long line of pink rims the horizon. The sun is finally up. The people of the caravan are quickly on their feet, exchanging smiles, rubbing hands, and beginning to cheer, unquote. And the way Malachi put it, they skip about like calves from the stall. Zacharias correctly tells us that the sun coming over the horizon and illuminating our paths in the way of peace is the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into this world. Bursting onto the human scene, born of Mary. You know, one of the reasons I like lights at Christmas time. And I think why we like the lights is because there's all these Old Testament prophecies of the darkness and then the light that comes into the world and illumines our paths. The Son of Righteousness, the Son of God comes with healing in His wings to shine upon those who sit in darkness, who sit in the shadow of death, to redeem us, to save us, that horn of salvation. The prophet Isaiah prophesied concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. 
those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Shall we pray? Father, I, I tend to think that most people don't even realize that the darkness that they live in without God in their lives, without Jesus Christ. Father, they think because they're trying to make their own way, do the best they can, trying to make Christmas a glorious celebration with all the lights and the gifts and the celebration and the songs. And Father, people just do not realize the darkness that they're in, the hopelessness that they share without Jesus Christ. And Father, in some small way, or maybe a great way because it's of you, Lord, may we be like John, who was the forerunner, be like Zacharias, his father, who said these things are going to happen, was a forerunner of, of telling about the light, the sun of righteousness, the sun from on high that raises and comes and illumines our way and saves us. Father, may we be somehow used, even in these next few days, Father, to be one of those forerunners, to be used of you to tell people, to be used of your Holy Spirit to help people understand that Jesus coming into this world is the light. He is the Redeemer. He is their Savior. And Father, may that give a cause of rejoicing in salvation because of your great mercy, your Hesed, who has shone upon us and who has visited those who live in this dark world and need to know the light of Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.